Hey, this is You Had Me at Black. I'm Martina Abrahams Olunga. For our longtime family, welcome back. We missed you guys. And for our new family, welcome to our show. This is our sixth season premiere. We started this show three years ago with the mission to reclaim the Black narrative. We were tired of the white lens through which Black stories are usually told and created this show to give regular people a microphone to share their stories in their own words. Now, when I say we, I'm referring to my sister, Brittany, and two of our friends. And today, our team has grown to eight people, all of whom volunteer their time, skills, and coins to produce You Had Me at Black as a labor of love for our community. And to be honest, that's been really challenging at times, juggling work, school, and life on top of this really important work. Our mission is big, and it really demands energy and focus, and we've only scratched the surface. That's why this season we're trying something new. Starting next week, we're accepting contributions from our listeners and community to support the show. Your contributions will support production, marketing, and ultimately our growth. And to start off, our goal is really simple. Just 100 contributions of $10 each week through May 16th. Until then, you can visit youhadmeatblack.com slash build to learn more and make a pledge to support. Now let's get to the first story of season six. This week's story comes from Kelly. Kelly grew up in a predominantly white town in Utah and had no idea what her parents did for a living. Then one day, the cops show up at her door. Here's what happened. You're listening to You Had Me at Black. Black. Right in the heart of the city. Black. Man, listen, man. Black, black. <laughs> this is you have me at black and we live baby i grew up in salt lake city utah i was the youngest of three people really aren't paying attention to me at this time so i can get away with everything i can basically do whatever i was the daring child so i really didn't have a lot of fears growing up me and my sisters shared a room in the basement and it was a sunday night I'm about five or six years old, and we went to bed at nine o'clock. So 8.30, I'm in my room, getting ready for bed, turn off the light, and we go to sleep. And I'm being shook. I wake up, and my dad whispers in my ear. It's like, Kelly, do you want to go on a plane? And I look at him, and I'm like, huh? He said, yeah, do you want to go on an airplane? Do you want to go on an airplane right now? you're old enough that you know you you can fly by yourself and I was like I can fly by myself yeah I want to fly by myself I felt special this this was gonna be fun he's like okay so we're gonna go to the airport and we're gonna give your bag to the people and then we're gonna walk over to the gate and so we get dressed and we get to the airport and then next thing I know we're at the gate and the stewardess comes up and she had this hat on and these white gloves and she, she bends down at me, and she was like, do you want to come with me? So I looked at my dad, and my dad's like, yeah, Kelly, you're going to go down the thing onto the plane, and you're going to have fun. 
don't worry. When you get there, everything's going to be fine. I was like, this is going to be so much fun. So the lady takes me by the hand and she walks me down the big, long hallway and we step onto the plane. Nobody sat next to me. I sat by myself. They brought me about three sprites and then it was time to land. So I get off the plane and the, the stewardess takes me by the hand and she walks me down the long hall and we turn. And when we get out to where the, the people are in the airport is, these people are meeting me. There's a man, there's a woman and three kids. I didn't know who they were. I mean, it really didn't matter. I was having fun. And then we went and got the suitcase and we went to their house. They had a pool, we played, we had food. It was just like three days of partying for me. By the end of the third day, they repacked my suitcase and we went to the airport and we did it all over again. And I flew back. And this time when I got off the plane, my mom and dad were there. They're both really happy to see me. And I went to him and I hugged them. My dad tells me, really good job. They were really proud of me. I was really happy in that moment. I felt like I had really done something. I wanted to please my dad. I wanted to be a big girl like my sister. So I wanted to show them that I could do this. And I never got scared during the trip. It was fun for me. I, I had no idea. We didn't talk about it after that until the next time it was time to go. My mom and my dad had no problem asking me to go. When it was time to go, I went. As I'm getting older, those trips kind of stopped. Those trips were happening when I was younger, five, six, seven years old. And so I'm, I'm in middle school. I'm in seventh grade. I'm in the kitchen and it's my turn to do the dishes. And so I'm doing the dishes and I'm scrubbing the spoons and I turn the spoon over. That's got a black burnt mark on it. And all the spoons have black burnt marks on it. And my sister Leslie's sitting there and she's doing her homework. And I turned to her and I said, why do we always have black, black burnt marks on the bottom of our spoons? What's that about? And she was like, I don't know, Kelly. You know, why do you think they're black? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know why they're black. And she's like, well, you know, maybe that's something you should ask daddy about. And I was like, okay. So I turned back around and I finished washing the spoons. We didn't talk about it again because of the way that she said it. Like, it's something that it was none of my business and that I shouldn't be asking. I just felt like I wouldn't ask about the spoons. At this time in my life, nobody ever said. When I was in middle school, I used to play bonnet ball. And bonnet ball was all girls baseball. We used to have practice across the street from my house. So I was at practice and I come home and I'm really surprised to see my mom and my dad and my two sisters out in the front yard doing yard work. And so I walk up and my mom says, Kelly, go inside. There's spaghetti in the kitchen. And when you're done eating, come outside and help us. And I'm like, okay. So I go in the house. And when you walk in our house, there's a wall. And on that wall are mirrors. And the kitchen is just right off that wall. So if you're sitting in the kitchen and you face that wall, you can see who's coming in the front door. So I'm sitting at the chair that gives you the best view to look in the mirrors. And I'm eating spaghetti, I'm still in my uniform. And all of a sudden, boom, the door burst open. And I look up and there are two men standing in the doorway with their guns drawn. So I stand up and they see me and they tell me to freeze. Don't move, I don't move. They walk 
toward me. They tell me to come around outside the kitchen. So I come around inside the living room. Both of them look at me. And one of them says, on your knees, interlock your fingers, put your hands behind your head. So I get on my knees, I interlock my fingers, I put my hands behind my head, and they put their weapons away. And don't move, is what he tells me. Do not move. They go into my parents' bedroom. They're in there for a little while. I can hear drawers being opened, things being moved around. And then they come out with these giant tan bricks. Each of them are carrying maybe three or four, and they bring them outside. And at this point, I decide to stand up. And I slowly come to the front door, and I look outside, and there are two cars in front of our house. My mom and dad are in the back seat in one of the cars. My dad's on the passenger side in the back seat, and he's talking, he's screaming. And I stand in the doorway for a moment, and when I look around and realize that nobody's really paying any attention to me, I walk down the steps. And I look at my dad, and he looks at me, and we make eye contact. and says, Kelly, come here. I didn't say anything. I just walked up to the car. And he's like, call Fratto. Call Fratto. And then they told me to step back, and then they all got in the car, and they drove away. And I look at my sisters, and, and they're both crying. And so I go inside the house. Our, our telephone sat in one area of the house, and in that telephone door was the number of the person, and it said Fratto on it, and Fratto was the attorney. I gave the number to my sister, Tracy, because she's the oldest. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I gave it to her, and I asked them, I said, what happened? What's going on? And my sister, Leslie, was like, they were arrested for heroin, Kelly. I didn't really know what that meant. We, we don't know what's going to happen. I feel scared. I, I got up that next morning. I go outside and I get the newspaper. I open it up. And on the front page is uh, the largest drug bust in Utah history, the Mexican Connection. And they have all the pictures of the people that were busted in this drug bust. And in the, in the pictures were a picture of my mom and a picture of my dad. And later that day, it is on the news. And on the, when I was watching the news, I saw my parents getting out of the paddy wagon and going into, I guess, the courthouse and the camera flashing at them and them being in cuffs and just feeling so incredibly ashamed and embarrassed. I felt relieved when my mom came home. My mom was in jail, I believe, for about a week after the arrest. And I remember the day that she came home. Matter of fact, we went to the jail. When she came out of the room and I saw her, I jumped up and I ran over to her and I hugged her. I wanted to ask what happened, but I, I didn't. I just hugged her. She never gave an explanation. That was kind of her goal is we're not going to talk about this and we're going to do what we have to do. And then your dad's in jail or prison. I just accept it. I go with it because I'm happy that she's home. So after the arrest, it's time to go to trial. I thought it was going to be like a courtroom like in television, but the courtroom didn't look anything like that. It looked a lot more plain. So we're sitting in the courtroom and my mom is talking to 
Mr. Fratto, um, the man that my father had asked me to call. And then you hear a bang on the door, and then a man comes out and he says, I'll rise. And then I hear my dad's name. I turn and I look and, and he comes out and he looks so thin. And I'm thinking, this cannot be my dad. His feet are shackled and his hands are shackled. And he's in an orange jumpsuit. I feel angry. I feel like this isn't fair. What did they do to him to make him so thin and look so tired and look so worn? He shuffles to the table that sits in front of where the judge is. And we're sitting in that very front row so I can reach out and touch him, but they will not let me. The, the man comes and stops me. And they sit down and I don't know what they're talking about. I remember looking at my dad and trying to get his attention. I'm jumping up and down and I'm calling his name, daddy, daddy, but he won't turn and look at me. And then everybody stands up again and he leaves the courtroom. He turned and he looked at us and then they took him and they shuffled him away. And that was the last time that I saw my dad until I was in high school. When I was in high school, I had pretty much figured it out. I knew what drugs were, so I understood. And so when my dad was released from prison, he comes in and he wants to kind of come in where he left off. Headed the household. We had several arguments because he had not been there for so long. I felt like it wasn't right for him to come back and expect to have all the respect he had prior to him leaving. That I was grown up, I understand the things that he did and watched my mom struggle to raise three kids as a single parent. I have a lot of resentment toward my dad. This man is here to ruin my life, so I'm angry, I'm pissed. There's nothing I can do about it though. I felt that it was time for me to leave, so when I graduated high school, I left. Fast forward to, uh, I'm 33, I'm pregnant with my last child, with my son. I'm in the hospital and I'm on bed rest, and my dad would come up and visit me every single day. And so one day we're sitting and I just start asking about the things in my past that I remember. I want to know about why I always got on a plane. What, what was I doing? So he says to me, you were trafficking drugs, Kelly, you're a mule. Who would ever suspect a five-year-old child of taking drugs across state lines, he told me. I also asked him about the burnt spoons, and he said, yes, you know, he was a heroin dealer. That's how he made his money. My dad felt that he had limited options living in Salt Lake City as a black man, and selling drugs was something that was easy to do relatively, and he made a lot of money doing it. I do regret it, he says. I do have regrets, but it's something that I felt that I had to do.
And after he confirmed everything, I felt relieved to know that he was honest with me. He cried that day and he apologized. I didn't forgive him at that point in time, but I understood that he felt that he had to make the choices that he had to make. He wanted to make amends and try to make up for his past indiscretions. And that was the last time that we had that conversation. My dad died in a car accident that following year, about three months after my son was born. But I was happy to have that moment with him. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our team, head to youhadmeatblack.com slash about us. Peace.